0: book five which I think works as a standalone Um, well they you know one of the things about book five that's both uh, (coughs) bad and bad about it is how many standalone episodes there are Uh, that is what you get is just a whole bunch of kind of um, fables or episodes of um, dealing justly and the poem doesn't really pick up um, until Artigal starts messing up. And um, then, you, then you get weirdness and hilarity of various sorts. Did you find it funny, Book 5? It's hilarious. Now, but are you being sarcastic? or No. no okay. Also, I love Dallas, even though he's such a weirdo. But it's great. It's just, I inflate, just, you know, just, Yeah. Just no. just wipe he's, everyone out. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's if the it's robot in Lost in Space had become hugely embittered, by um, his robot experience in the world. Well, it is Iron Man. That is sort of what happens to Iron Man in the, in the, you know the Ted Hughes, did we talk about this? Ted Hughes wrote the screenplay for Iron Man. Have you all seen Iron Man? Yes. yes. Um, have you seen Iron Man 2? Yes. <laughs> <was a> two. <laughs> I watched There's two. you <laughs> watched the cartoons that were out? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Avengers. And then yeah. there was the old Iron Man and then the new Iron Man and then Giant Man and Wasp. Yes. So good. <laughs> And then Wasp is also the name of a character in the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series, and the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is kind of a knight of chastity and power, sort of like Bertram Mart, which brings us back to the very queen. Um, Ted Hughes um, was Sylvia Platt's husband, and when he left her, she killed herself, and then many years later he wrote Iron Man. So um, everything comes together, but the birthday, yeah. But Iron Man is—he um, gets angry rather like our Iron Man here does. Okay, let's go to let's go back to book four. Um, as I say, we will um, uh, at least look at one episode in book five and ask what you think Spencer really thinks about this. Um, but so go to book four, Canto Ten, and um, this is. Um, scudamore describing how he won Amaret, um and how did he win Amaret? what's the quick answer to this just the, tum- uh, the temple of venus uh-huh. and he defeats 20 knights gets a shield goes past all these obstacles within the temple and finally shows up uh and finds venus and Amaret, and then he uh then he takes Amrit because he he's a little upset, then he shows the shield, and that's okay. Yeah. And then they leave. You know. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we're getting the completion of the story whose, um, whose worst moment is the introduction of Scudamore and the appearance of Amrit on stage at the end of book three. Now here, towards the end of Book 4, we find out, um, we get the completion of the story, which um, shows how Scudamore won Amaret, how they got married, how Bucerene um, kidnapped her on their wedding day, um, and we're getting this story uh, very much out of order. But around um, 19 or so, um, can, so this is page 688, um... Um, Scudamore describes uh, how he entered Um, and um, he says of himself but I though meanest man of many mo, yet much disdaining unto him to lout that is to bow down unto danger unto the figure of danger or creep within his legs the way cowards, between his legs as cowards do. So in to go, resolved him to assault with manhood stout, and either beat him in or drive him out. As soon as advancing that enchanted shield, that is the shield of love, with all my might I gan to lay about, which when he saw the glaive which he did wield, he gan forthwith to veil and weigh unto me. Yield. So as soon as he faces danger, danger gives up trying to stop him. Um, very clear-cut allegory. Um, he <coughs> neither tries to cowardly in a cowardly manner sneak around danger, <coughs> nor does he bow down to danger. So as I entered, I did backward look for fear of harm that might lie hidden there, and lo, his hind parts. Whereof heat I took much more deformed, fearful, ugly were than all his former parts did erst appear, for hatred, murder, treason, and despite with many mo lay in, in ambushment there, awaiting to entrap the wearless white which did not then prevent with vigilant foresight. So those are all the things that you're in danger of um, in this world. Um, the danger peop- the dangers people fear, hatred, murder, treason, um, and despite. Thus having passed all peril, so it is past danger, I was come within the compass of that island space, the which did seem unto my simple doom, the only pleasant and delightful place that ever trodden was a footing's trace so that ever footsteps were left on. For all that nature by her mother wit could frame an earth and form of substance base was there, and all that nature did omit, art playing second nature's part supply it, it. So a little bit the Temple Temple of Venus is starting to look like a combination of the Garden of Adonis and the Bower of Bliss. The Garden of Adonis is a place of natural form where where form and matter come together, but it's all nature. Um, Whereas the Bower of Bliss, what's wrong with the Bower of Bliss seems to be, um, if you ask why the bower itself should be destroyed, it seems to be the fact that art is made to look like nature. Um, it's all very artfully done. Um, and it all looks like nature, but isn't. And that's what Gaion and the Palmer um, are one of the things that they're against about it, that it's artificial. Um, but here in the Temple of Venus, there's artifice as well. Um, Gaion, <coughs> by the way, aren't you thrilled? Comes back in Book Five. Can't you wait? Maybe not. I like Gaion. You do? Really? Why? <laughs> no, I mean why? That's interesting. Um I think I like him A because no one else does. Okay. B because I think I have a sort of tragic identification with <laughs> <going on. laughs> him. And therefore I feel obligated to <laughs> to wow. like him. Wow. That's neat. Yeah, well, he's he's a really he's he's a lonely person. Um there is something sad about him. And uh, it's his, it's his, um, it's why Britomar defeats him. It's his inability to, to fall in love, you could say. But at um, least he likes his horse, and his horse likes him. Yes, okay, that's, Guyon likes his horse, and his horse it's likes him. He's very it, intense, too, and I yeah, think there's, yeah. like, he tries to be temperate, but never succeeds, yeah. in that yeah. sort of intensity of person, I think, yeah. is what makes me okay, like him. Yeah, okay, that's good. Yeah, um, agree. because it, it seems as if he, 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 he says to himself, in the most OCD way possible. Yeah, really cute. yeah, cute. <laughs> okay, I think probably this is the first time he's in the history of English English study of literature that he's been called cute, but that's good. I like that. Um, all right, so you're all looking forward <laughs> to Guyon's return. Um, maybe he's a little like Stewie. Do you think? Stewie? He's Family Guy. Stewie? Family guy. Yeah, he's he's also he he. I think he shares some some of Guy's characteristics. The minute Elsie Keaton Donald Duck screen nephew's been does Stewie. No, no. Huey Louie. I know those. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good no tree that is of count in greenwood grows from lowest juniper to cedar tall no flower and field the dainty odor throws and dexes branch with blossoms over all but there was planted or grew natural so either planted or natural either way um, nor sense of man so coy and curious nice but there mote fine to please itself with all nor heart could wish for any quaint device but there it present was and did frail sense entice, so everything there is in the temple of Venus, whether natural or artificial, all things that conduce to sexual desire conduce to um, desire of any sort. But there's a pun um, I will just mention on the word quaint there, which um, is a big pun in Chaucer uh, that is it's it would be overreading, perhaps. Um, except for the fact that Chaucer makes this a major, major pun in, um, in the Canterbury Tales, and also in Troilus and Crusade. And, um, Spencer, as you know, revered Chaucer, who, um, was at the time the greatest English poet who ever lived. Um, Shakespeare was still to come. And, um, and Spencer just thought you should be as much like Chaucer as you could if you wanted to be a great poet. Um, in such luxurious plenty of all pleasure, it seemed a second paradise to guess so lavishly enriched with nature's treasure—that is, treasure—that if the happy souls which do possess the Lybian field and live in lasting bliss should happen this with living eye to see, they soon would loathe their lesser happiness and wish to life returned again to be, that in this joyous place they mote have joyous joyance free. So, um, now, quickly, since it's about the eighth time we're going to do it, um, allegorize that stanza as, um, with respect to the way it is thinking about allegory, somebody. Do you understand the question? So, what we've been doing over and over again is looking at... Um, places where, where the fairy queen is self-reflective. That is, where the real conflict in the fairy queen is not between holiness and unholiness or temperance and excess or chastity and, um, and uh, lechery or justice and injustice or friendship and enmity or courtesy and rudeness, um, those are all the obvious things that the fairy queen is allegorizing. But what we've looked at over and over again are the places where it's self-reflective and it is and it is interested in the very idea of allegory. It tells a story about allegory. Um, so if you look at this stanza in that mode, what is the stanza saying, Doug? Um, well, I mean, say something about... This. Souls in heaven, if they saw this place, would rather be there, which maybe implies that, like, I don't know, a place that exists in literature that's kind of made up or fantastical is better even than, like, heaven. Yeah, good. Yes. Yes. And do you agree with yourself about that's what this means? That's what this means, or do I agree? No, no. no, Do you agree that that's what it means? Yeah. That, that in some (laughs) sense, what Spencer, that there's some way that um, the Temple of Venus has to stand for something like the Fairy Queen itself. Um, that is, no, stay here in this poem and don't get rid of the poem for the abstract, moral, um, religious, pietistic truth um, that it's supposedly in service of. Um, you know, I mean, we've looked at that several times, but here seems a very clear cut case that the Temple of Venus would make people in heaven prefer the Temple of Venus to people to being in heaven. Um, and what the Temple of Venus is like is the Fairy Queen. It's a combination of nature and art, of ornament, of curiosity, of beauty, of everything put together that that um, non-heavenly decoration, non-heavenly art and artfulness can put together. Gaion was against this in book two, but by the time you get to book four, it's almost as though, no, this, this really is a thing. Gaeon shouldn't have destroyed the Barrow of Bliss. Thank goodness there's the Temple of Venus. Yeah. And it also harks back to this may be the reason why the customers are lining up at the Garden of Adonis to be reclosed. Yes, nice, exactly. That is why um, all those figures who are born uh, to live and die nevertheless wait, a thousand, thousand wait to be reborn. Um, for genius to clothe them again in sinful mire. Um, why do they wait? Because that's where they want to be, not in elision fields, but, but here on Earth. Um, so fresh shadows fit to shroud from Sunny ray. Fair lawns to take the sun season due, Sweet springs in which a thousand nymphs did play, Soft rumbling brooks the gentle slumber drew, High reared mounts the lands about to view, Low-looking dales disloined from common gaze, Delightful bowers to solace lovers true, False labyrinths, fond runners' eyes to daze, All which by nature made did nature self-amaze? So nature was amazed by the very things that she made. Um, her own, so nature and art are combining here. Nature is an artist. It's not as as we thought in the Bower of Bliss that nature and art are opposites, but nature and art combine, which means that nature is amazed by the things she's made. Um, she's amazed because... Um, because it's not simply, yes, this is how things are. Um, the general idea of nature is, um, it's a place where you're at home in the world. Um, the reason we should all go back to nature and sing John Denver songs is because in nature we'll feel at home. Um, whereas the artfulness of modern civilization is um, something that looks good at first, but we're lost and it doesn't belong to us. But here it's nature herself as the artist and is as amazed, and um, she's amazed by the labyrinth. That is, he's, the pun in the word amaze is that she is lost in, the, in her own maze, um, in the maze of the labyrinth that she creates. Notice again how this is almost a quick summary of the Fairy Queen. Remember um, the labyrinth of error in book one. It's again almost as though the, this is standing for the whole of the Fairy Queen, and all without were walks and alleys dight with divers trees and ranged and even ranks. And here and there were pleasant arbor's plight and shady seats and sundry flowering banks to sit and rest. The walker's weary shanks, not the best rhyme ever. And therein thousand prayers of, pairs of lovers walked, praising their God and yielding him great thanks. Nay ever aught but of their true loves talked, nay ever for rebuke or blame of any balked so they're only talking of their own loves um, talking of each other to each other of the fact that they love each other and none of them ever stop um, or or um, reach some kind of hindrance some balk because they are rebuking or blaming each other this is love without bitterness love without sourness here. In Canto 10 of the Book of Friendship. Um, and then here's the crucial part, as Scudamore goes on all these together by themselves dis- did sport their spotless pleasure and sweet love's content. But far away from these, another sort of lovers linked in true heart's consent, linked in true heart's consent which loved not as these, excuse me, which loved not as these, for like intent, but on chaste virtue grounded their desire, far from all fraud or feigned blandishment, which in their spirits kindling zealous fire, brave thoughts and noble deeds did evermore aspire. So we've seen in Canto 23 lovers who are, Um, feeling sexual and erotic desire for each other and they're very happy and they don't blame each other and as you will see what happens in Paradise Lost um, mentioned this before um, um, Adam and Eve had plenty of sex before the fall Uh, the standard view of Christian theology although somewhat debated at the time was that eating the apple was the the beginning of sex Um, that's Augustine's view that what the apple did in giving you knowledge of good and evil, um, as Genesis says, was that it made Adam and Eve know that they were naked. They hadn't realized before that they were naked. And once they knew that they were naked, um, they were ashamed. And the very idea is that sexuality is um, an experience of lustful shame or shameful lust um, and that knowing that you're naked in ordinary life, um, that, is, that becomes an issue at the same time as you reach puberty. Um, and in ordinary individual life, reaching puberty, um, feeling weird about being naked, being interested in the weirdness of that feeling and so on, all of those things come together And that's the moment when you fall out of childhood, out of the paradise of childhood into adulthood. So Genesis is supposed to tell that story of the awakening of sexuality as something that is both tremendously desirable, hence the temptation of the fruit, um, but also a fall away from a more innocent but purer and more long-lasting bliss, which is Eden. Milton doesn't think that. What Milton thinks is that there can be perfectly Edenic sex and that that sex is um, as wonderful and as good as Edenic fruit is and as Edenic sleep is and as all experiences in Eden are. Um, it's kind of um, uh, sex as pure pleasure without any of the... Um, of the less pleasurable elements of it that for the fallen make it interesting. Um, part of what Milton is saying is you might think that sex without lust isn't as pleasurable as sex with lust, but that's because you're fallen. That's one of the, one of the claims that, that um, the pietistic reading of Paradise Lost will make. Um, what happens after Adam and Eve eat the fruit is they have the first hot sex in the history of humanity they've had plenty of sex before that but now they have really hot sex but as soon as they have that really hot sex when it's over they start recriminating against each other and they get angry at each other um, and bitter with each other um, and it's like there's this flash of hormones um, you know the term hate sex, that's what they have is hate sex and um, and um, then they have this bitter recrimination against each other. And what Spencer is saying, what Milton is getting from Spencer, among the many, many things he gets from Spencer, is the idea that in the Garden of Eden or the Temple of Venus, um, you can have lovers can have sex without recrimination and bitterness, um, and that it can, and that it's really great. But now he goes to a different kind of love. And here, he really takes the bull by the horns, as it were. Um, He says, so here are these lovers who are sporting with each other, um, and their pleasure is spotless, and their loves are content. Um, It's all good, Um, but far away from these. And the but there makes you think you're gonna hear about um, (coughs) less pleasurable, more uh, um, uh, lustful, Sex, but that turns out not to be what it's about. But far away from these, another sort of lovers link it in true heart's consent, which love it not as those for like intent, that is, out of the desire for sexual pleasure, that's their intent, but on chaste virtue grounded their desire. So now we get back to the idea of chastity that was um, what book three was about. Far from all fraud or feigned blandishment, that is, there's none of the arts of seduction um, that, is, um, that that uh, you will see between these couples that he's now about to describe. Um, and here you should see that blandishment is what gives Blandimore his name. Um, far from all fraud or feigned blandishment, which in their spirits kindling zealous fire brave thoughts and noble deeds did evermore aspire. So this love in the temple of Venus is now going to be described in stanza 27. Such were great Hercules and Hylas dear, Hercules' best friend. True Jonathan and David, trusty, tried. Jonathan, who is David's best friend. Stout Theseus and Pirithous, his fear. That is a combination of brother and um, peer. Um, pylades and Orestes by his side. Miltitus and Gisipus without pride. Damon and Pythias whom death could not sever. All these and all that ever had been tied in bands of friendship there did live forever whose lines, although decayed, Yet, whose lives, although decayed, yet love's decayed never. So that now it turns out, and this is really crucial to see about Spencer's thinking, it turns out that friendship and erotic love alike are, are both versions of the same thing, which is just love itself. Um, and that they are both appropriately found here on this island in the temple of Venus. Which when, as I, that never tasted bliss nor happy hour beheld with gazeful eye, I thought there was none other heaven than this and gan their endless happiness envy that being free from fear and jealousy might frankly there, their love's desire possess. Whilst I, through pains and perilous jeopardy, was forced to seek my life's dear patroness, much dearer be the things which come through hard distress. Um, so what he now does is he feels envy for these people who are free from fear and jealousy so he's jealous of those who don't feel jealousy it's um, a sort of self-contradictory um, state that he finds himself in um, and it's there, which he see, there that he sees the actual temple of great Venus in the next stanza um, and there that he goes in um, to win Amaret, um, But go just forward to stanza 32, because now we see the self-contradiction between those who... And we've been talking about jealousy now for a couple of weeks as um, a theme that's rising in the fairy queen. It's the theme that that can break friends apart, that can break lovers apart. Um, Malbecco is the first great allegorical figure of jealousy. Um and that nevertheless seems to be friendship (coughs) gone bad. Um, So now we see that what's gone on between um, Campbell and, um, and the Mond brothers is that what friendship means is that you're not jealous of your friend for winning the lady and not jealous of your brother for winning the lady. So that there is a way that love can spread out um, as sexual love between two people and then friendship um, and siblinghood if you go beyond two people. That's part of the point here. Um, and the failure of those of that love comes out as jealousy. Um, that's why Scudamore is jealous of Britomar until he finds out that she's a woman. That's why um, the friendship between... Amies and Placidus is one where one can um, stand for the other, can, can um, substitute for the other. Friendship as a second self, the simplest way to understand that is that friendship is the power of substitution. Um, that is that you can substitute for the other person and face danger, like Sidney Carton, um, or... You can allow the other person to substitute for you, and get the the lady whom you're in love with. Um, if your friend gets her, that's fine. Again, like Sydney Carton, um, this is Dickens is is giving a very similar account in A Tale of Two Cities. So there we are in the Temple of Venus, and. Um, what we see is an amiable dame that seemed to be a very sober mood. This is stanza 31. And in her semblance showed great womanhood. Strange was her tire, for on her head a crown she wore like unto a danis could, powdered with pearl and stone and all her gown, and woven was with gold that rocked full low adown. On either side of her two young men stood, both strongly armed as fearing one another." yet were they brethren both of half the blood so they were half brothers begotten by two fathers of one mother though of contrary nature each to other so here we have half siblings the one of them hate love the other hate hate was the elder love the younger brother Yet was the younger stronger in his state than the elder and him mastered still in all debate. So hate and love are half brothers. Hate is the older one, but love is the stronger. Love defeats hate. <coughs> Excuse me. Love defeats hate. Um, that's an obvious allegorical um, um, lesson. Um but they both have to be tempered. Here we get the idea of temperance again, um, and they're tempered by the goddess Concord. Nevertheless the Dame so well them tempered both, that she them forced hand to join in hand, albeit that hatred was thereto full loath, and turned his face away as he did stand, unwilling to behold that lovely band. Yet she was of such grace and virtuous might that her commandment he could not withstand but bit his lip for felonist despite and mashed his iron tusks at that displeasing sight. Um, so there, love and hatred come together and they're supposed to f- form Concord, but here again we have that kind of bizar- bizarro world question of how do we make this allegory make sense? Because if hatred and love are in Concord, then that would suggest that there's no love without hate. That hate, even though love is stronger, there's always an element of hate in love. If, on the other hand, hatred and love are always at furious enmity with each other, that would come to the same thing. Because if love has an enemy, if love regards hatred as an enemy, then love hates hate, which means that love contains hatred within it. So the very fact of the existence of hate in an allegorical world means that there is no way to conceive of allegorically of the relation of love to hate without hate infecting love. And that is the ever present danger of love that either love and hate will join together in Concord. So we'll say it's a thin line between love and hate Or love is akin to hate. Or love is akin to hate in hating hate. Mm -hmm. Um, And therefore, corrupted by the very thing, by the very fact that it's trying to prevent its own corruption, which is Guyon like Fanatical temperance. um, Here, transposed into the region of love. Could it also mean that the ability to love breeds the ability to hate? Yeah. Yes. Um... Okay, so now go forward a little bit to the goddess Venus herself because because the real issue that the temple of Venus is trying to think through is how you harmonize opposites where what it means where the, the great, great opposite that love is supposed to harmonize is the opposition between self and other. Love is you and someone not you who's the person that you love. And when you look around at couples, they're both others and they get along fine. It's perfectly fine if you're looking at other couples to think, look, they're perfectly happy, they're a couple, and I think of them as a, as a couple. Um, two others who harmonize with each other perfectly. The problem is with you yourself, which is yourself and the person you love, or your friend, or whatever it is, is an other. So the allegory of hate and love is half brothers who can't be harmonized because the very idea of harmonizing would be the harmony, you could say, of harmony with disharmony. That very idea means that there can't be perfect harmony between them. That's a really good emblem of what love is always facing. So right in the midst, go to Sansa 39. He sees all these altars. He goes to the inmost temple um, and um, hatred tries to brain him, but Concord stops her. Right in the midst then at Sansa 39, the goddess self did stand. That is Venus herself. Upon an altar of some costly mass, whose substance was uneath to understand, for neither precious stone, nor durable brass, nor shining gold, nor moldering clay it was, but much more rare and precious to esteem, pure in aspect and like to crystal glass. Yet glass was not, if one did rightly deem, but being fair and brickle, likest glass did seem." But it in shape and beauty did, rec- did excel all other idols which the heathen adore, far passing that which by surpassing skill Phidias did make in Paphos' isle of your Phidias the greatest of Greek sculptors, with which that wretched Greek, that life for Lord did fall in love. Um, someone fell in love with one of Phidias' sculptures. Yet this much fairer shined but covered with a slender veil of four, and both her feet and legs together twined were with a snake, whose head and tail were fast combined. So she, so here's this amazing sculpture, but she's got a veil on it. Um, That veil obviously has something to do with virginity. Um, That is, there's this thin veil. It's got something to do with virginity. but also something to do with hiding or there's some some connection between virginity and hiding. We've seen that in Britomart. Um, but both her feet and legs together twined, and w- twined were with a snake. What does a snake have to stand for allegorically among many other things? If the veil is virginity, what's the snake? Yes. You never go wrong if you say a phallic symbol. Even if you're wrong, the teacher will say, "Interesting. Um, maybe <laughs> not here, but um, no. Seriously, try it. Any English class? Anyone taking Hitchcock?" It's at the same time as this. Oh, is it at the same time as this? Yeah. It's oh, okay. Still there, but yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's yeah. They, it's practically the same course. Um, <laughs> um, "Strangers on a Train" has a hilarious moment um, with a phallic symbol. Okay, uh, so there's Venus, who stands for both virginity, purity of love, but also she's somehow bound by a snake, by a phallic symbol. What, by the way, would the snake in Genesis be? The snake which teaches Adam, which first teaches Eve about sex. Temptation. Yeah, and what kind of symbol would the snake be? A phallic symbol. Yeah, you never go wrong, really. Um... How about the tree? Alex and Bob. I'm not sure actually. But, <laughs> but it's interesting. <laughs> but it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Depending on whether it's a tree or a bush. <sighs> mm. <laughs> what did <are you> say? <laughs> this is a good point. Mm. Yes. Well, apples hang from it. Um. So, and both her feet were. T- what? Because it's supposed to be quince, too. Yes. Both her feet and legs together twined were with a snake whose head and tail were fast combined. Why does the snake have um, head and tail combined with each other? It's a combination of opposites. Again, it's not what you're thinking. It's a combination of opposites again. Um, that is the whole point about about Venus is um, hatred and love come together. Um, purity and danger come together. Hymen and phallus come together. Head and tail of the of the snake itself combined. Wasn't yeah. it also that symbol for perfect continuity and concord? Yes. If that the one is the beginning of the other, the other is the beginning of the other. Yeah, one. although the question is is the snake is the head and the tail of the snake are they wreathed together or is the tail of the snake in in its mouth mm-hmm. which is the which is another um, iconographic symbol. They're both of them. I mean, they're both very ancient um, symbols. The cause why she was covered with a veil was hard to know, for that her priests, the same from people's knowledge labor, for that her priests, I'm sorry, for that her priests, because her priests, the same from people's knowledge labor to conceal. But sooth, it was not sure for womanish shame or any blemish which the work mote blame But for, they say, she hath both kinds in one, both male and female, both under one name. So sire and mother is herself alone, begets and eat conceives, nay needeth other none. So why is she covered with a veil? Because she is a hermaphrodite. So Venus in... The the sculpture of the Temple of Venus is Venus as hermaphrodite. That is, all the cross-dressing that we've seen so far, in a way, you get a major, major version of it here, that Venus, the goddess of love, is, or at least the statue of Venus as goddess of love, is a hermaphrodite. That basically proves the symbolism of the veil and the snake. Mm -hmm. That is, simultaneously, Hymen and Phallus. And here he's very explicit about it. The reason she's veiled is so that you won't see that she's a hermaphrodite, but she's also veiled because she doesn't need anyone else um, in order to reproduce. Um, The myth of the creation of Venus is that Venus was created um, without a father or a mother, um, and therefore contains within herself everything needed for generation. And all about her neck and shoulders flew a flock of little loves. Um, anyone know how you would say little loves in, in Italian? Yes. Um, Amoretti. Yes. The way, the way you would say it in, in English accented Italian, which is how Spencer would say it is Amoretti, which is the name of Spencer's sonnet sequence, as I mentioned to you before. Um, the sonnet sequence that he wrote, um, to the woman he eventually married. Um, So yeah, it's almost as though his little sonnets are flying around her as well. Um, Okay, Um, the point again is Spencer really is, if you don't get it, Spencer really here is bringing you to the logical culmination of the issues of love and friendship, which is this combination of yourself with another who is different from you. And the, um, the description of that combination, which is most vivid, is the description of the hermaphrodite. Um, do people know? I see that the other man is not here. Um, people have read the Symposium, um, Plato's Symposium, anyone? Um, so do you recall the original, or if you've seen Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? Um, the original um, sexes according to Aristophanes in that platonic dialogue. Aristophanes the playwright is one of the speakers and it's a dialogue on love. That is um, several famous Greeks Socrates the second to last um, give their definition of love and Aristophanes the playwright is one of them. Do people know um, what he says love is? Is this familiar to anyone? Julian? Yeah, uh, it was um Other paths, are there yeah, so that originally, he says, there were three sexes. It's often boldlerized and, and um, taught as originally there was a single sex. And that what happened was Zeus, um, fearful that human beings were completely uninterested in him because they were perfectly self-sufficient, um, decided that he would make them see what it was like to need something like God by not having everything they needed within themselves, so he cut all human beings in half, and the cleaned-up, G-rated version is, and therefore you're always looking for your uh, for the other half of what you originally were in the world, and um, those halves become male and female, and so so. Males look for the female half that they've lost, and when they find their true love, they find that other half. And females um, likewise and simultaneously look for the male halves they lost when they find that other half Um, then they all combine into that whole, and that's all really wonderful. Um, The actual myth is there were originally three sexes. Um, It's actually a lot more like modern genetics. Um, um, All males, all females, and hermaphrodites. And when Zeus cut these three original kinds of human beings in half, the double males became single males, the double females became single females, and the hermaphrodite became half, the hermaphrodites were divided into into another population of men and women. The double males were gay men, the double females were lesbians, and the hermaphrodites were heterosexual men and women. So each is still looking for their other half, Um, The original double males are are gay men looking for the gay men that they've been um, separated from. The original double females are are gay women looking for the gay women they've been separated from. And the hermaphrodites are heterosexual men looking for the heterosexual women they've been separated from and vice versa. Um, And all of this Spencer is thinking of here. That's why friendship and love um, go together in much the way that in the symposium, um, the other half, the other part of you that you are looking for um, can be like you in friendship or unlike you in heterosexual love. And the friendships that we get in books three and four of The Fairy Queen are friendships between women and friendships between men, as well as um, explicitly erotic love between men and women. But here in the Temple of Venus, he really goes polymorphously perverse on you, to use Freud's term. Um, and that polymorphous perversity, like Freud, he thinks that love goes in all directions. And what it always is, though, is, is the difficult combination of something that is not you um, and yet that you somehow have to join with what you are not. And so you yourself cannot be entirely yourself in love or in friendship. Um, There is another self which both is and isn't you. Um, Okay, Uh, that is in an obvious way gonna lead to justice, which is um, the argument between the claims of oneself and the claims of others. What happens when there has to be adjudication of those claims? And the very first thing, those who've begun book five, as you all have on average, um, the very first thing that happens in book five is a Solomonic judgment, which mm-hmm. is what? What is the Solomonic judgment that article? Um, Cutter in half. Yeah. Cutter in half, yeah. exactly. Cutter in half, the, the Aristophanic idea again. Um, that, of course, is wrong, but it's an allusion to the most famous judgment of Solomon, um, to the trickery of that judgment, but also it's a really good pickup from book four. And, yo, yeah, we're in book five. Isn't that great? Good. <laughs> All right, quiz. No fooling on Monday. I'm not going to ask are you ready for a quiz. I'm going to give it to you. You don't think I can do that, but I can.